Hello and welcome to the AMSSM Sports Medcast produced in collaboration with the BJSM. I'm your host, Dr. Giselle Arney, and usually you can hear me on my own podcast, the Madam Athlete Podcast, where I interview women working in sports and athletics about their unique career journeys. But today I'm honored to be here with AMSSM and speaking with two incredible women in the field of sports medicine about the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine's position statement on mental health issues and psychological factors in athletes. So let me introduce our guests, the co-first authors on the position statement, Dr. Cindy Chang and Dr. Margo Patukian. Dr. Cindy Chang is currently program director for UCSF's Primary Care Sports Medicine Fellowship. She was previously head team physician for Cal Berkeley and chief medical officer for Team USA at the 2008 Beijing Paralympics and 2012 London Olympics. Dr. Margo Patukian is currently chief medical officer at Major League Soccer and previously was director of athletic medicine and head team physician for Princeton University. Both are past presidents of AMSSM, and if I continued to list the amazing things they have accomplished in their careers, that would be the entire 30-minute episode. So I'll leave it there. Thank you both so much for being here. How are you? Good. Great. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Perfect. So we are going to be talking about this position statement. 87 pages long. This is not tiny. This was initially accepted 2019, published early 2020, so our just to put this in perspective on the timeline for folks, why was it important for AMSSM to put out a position statement on mental health and athletes? I think it was very clear from, uh, for those of us who work with uh, student athletes is that, uh, and athletes in general, is that, you know, so much emphasis is placed on the physical uh, aspects of participating in sports, but not enough on the mental aspects of participating in sport. And we wanted to address it from a perspective of, the primary care sports medicine physician, the team physician, uh, in looking at not only, you know, about categorically, you know, different illnesses, different mental health illnesses and challenges that the athlete may be uh, diagnosed with, but also um, how that could impair performance, how we could prevent those um, medical, uh, mental health challenges from being a pervasive part of our, our athletes' um, daily lives, how we can help them improve as athletes, and how we can support their mental health as well as, as well as their physical health. And we felt like there was a void in the literature regarding that, which is why we felt it was important that we publish that position statement. Yeah, and I think uh, I'll add, I mean, um, I think what, what made this a little bit novel, as, as Cindy mentioned, is just sort of the focus on, you know, detection, management, effect on performance and prevention. But it was also, I think we, we covered some topics that are somewhat novel. So, you know, that, that I hadn't seen or we hadn't seen in the literature as it relates to, you know, athlete, athletic identity, you know, uh, sexual orientation, gender identification, hazing, bullying, sexual abuse. I mean, those are some of the topics that really not many people have written about and certainly not from the perspective of a sports medicine physician uh, or the or the collaborative work you know that that we do with athletic trainers and other mental health providers. I think that was one of the most important things about the paper, to be honest, because I think that is a huge gap in the literature, as you both discussed, and it impacts the mental health so much. It's beyond DSM diagnosis of good old anxiety, depression, classic situations. This is really, you know, how you're handling a situation where there's pervasive sexual harassment and assault within your sport or the bullying, the hazing, the athlete identity, all of those contribute to mental health, even though they're not necessarily that DSM diagnosis, they're still part of the culture and environment that really impact an athlete. And so I think it was so important that you addressed all of those issues within this paper. 
I think well, we another, addressed oh. you're an author too. <laughs> I was. We yeah. we'll just sneak that right in there. It's just one of yeah, the lowly exactly authors. Right. Giselle is one of the authors, and yeah. uh, and you know, I I think in light of what's been happening with uh, recently, you know, some of the athletes, uh, more recently, most recently, Simone Biles there at the Olympics, but part of that, Naomi Osaka, and you know, n- not uh, feeling like uh, she was safe or in a good place to be able to participate in in the in the press conferences. And withdrawing um, from the tournament is is the fact that this athlete identity is huge in terms of, especially the pressure at at the Olympics. You know, she's trained all of her, you know, the last four years and now five years because of COVID, training for this big moment. You know, and and if you fail, how does that make you feel as an athlete? And uh, that performance anxiety, that that pressure, and 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 it's affected. Certainly, COVID has affected all of us. And, and others more from a financial security, et cetera. But for athletes, it's been hard for them to be unable to train, unable to, to compete, which is a lot tied up in terms of how they feel about themselves and their own self-worth. Absolutely. I think Simone Biles had a post recently, essentially thanking everyone for most folks, the general outpouring of encouragement and support and going, I didn't realize you know, that I was more than gymnastics and more than gold medalist. And, and it really took this to see that. And it is just like you said, that athlete identity is, is beyond that's a whole other mental health, self-care, you know, what's your identity, what's your purpose. And it can be really easy to wrap it right up into athletics, 100%. So if something doesn't go well, well, then what, then, then do you fall apart? Then you don't know who you are, then you're lost. I think, One of the things you talked about too in the paper that I feel like was really important was you essentially started off, I keep saying you guys, but you know, you directed it. You directed our position (laughs) statement. The we was the team-based approach to mental health care. And I think this was also a really important point in the paper. So I was wondering if you could talk about what that team looks like, why that is important. How do you take a team approach to mental health care of your athletes? Yeah. So I think, you know, that's, certainly important. And, and I think it's um, very much, you know, similar to how we approach most things as team physicians. I think um, a lot of times it's this collaborative approach in terms of, you know, the athletic trainer, or physical therapist, the physicians, your consultants, you know, your specialists, uh, and then certainly from the mental health standpoint, you know, the social workers, the psychologists, psychiatrists, et cetera, uh, that create that, that multidisciplinary team. And, you know, when we're coming up with screening tools or other other modes of detection, specifically looking for, for mental health issues, every one of those members are going to be important, right? Because they're going to pick up on something, you know, especially the athletic athletic trainers and, and sometimes your support staff, you know, your technical staff or your coaching staff or your parents, you know, they're sometimes going to pick up on something. And so the more that we can get the recognition tools out, and the more screening we can do and the more that we can educate uh, lay people as to what to look for when, um, when an athlete might be struggling helps the team and then ultimately helps the athlete, right? So I think it is important. This is probably more important than any other uh, topic in terms of working together collaboratively because it's such, it's such an important piece. Yeah, and I, I would just add that um, the multifactorial uh, nature of how we work together you know, the multi-organizational uh, nature of how we work together with our colleagues 
is really important because then on a larger scale, you know, besides what we're doing with our individual athletes, but on a larger scale, we can work with uh, these organizations, the National Athletic Trainers Association, for example. I mean, we can work with other organizations to help develop policies and approaches towards how we're going to work with our athletes who are challenged uh, with certain mental and psychological issues. Like how can we work together as a group to address some of these issues that are, are, are coming to the forefront in front of the public. Now the public is aware of how much pressure there is. The public is aware of, of the nature of social media and how it can contribute so much to an athlete's uh, mental health and well-being. This is a perfect segue into one of my questions. I think we've seen a big transition within the knowledge and acceptance and the willingness to discuss mental health in athletes. And the more recent news is, is the Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, having to remove themselves from competition for mental health, for safety reasons. And uh, there's been both a lot of encouragement. There has been some backlash. And how do you think over the years we've seen changes within the acceptance of mental health and the importance of prioritizing mental health in our athletes. And how do you think that social media piece is really playing a role into that? Well, I was, uh, we had a, a conversation prior to the podcast starting and we had an athlete here at uh, UC Berkeley, uh, Anthony Irvin, and he phenomenal uh, athlete who uh, went to the Olympics. He tied with Gary Hall. If you remember Gary Hall for the, uh, in 2000 at the 2000 games and they tied which is, right, really unheard of in in a sport of swimming, which is thousands of seconds um, for a gold medal in the 50 free. And he left the sport very, you know, soon after the the Olympics and the, and the re there are multiple reasons, but his first, uh, one of the first questions that he was asked on the pool deck after winning the 50 free was, how does it feel to be the first African-American to win a medal in swimming? And that was it. I mean, the focus was all about his um, heritage, his ethnicity and the weight of the world. You know, Simone talked about carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders. That was how he felt. And it wasn't that he was a unbelievable swimmer who trained really hard, et cetera. It was, he was representing all the other African-Americans in terms of his uh, swimming and how well he did and how he represented himself etc. It just was so much pressure on him. And this is back in 2000 before social media took a hold, right? You didn't hear about this at all. And now here we are in uh, 2021. And now it is. So social media has contributed, I believe, to some of the issues that we're addressing with the mental health challenges for our, our athletes. But it's also hopefully going to help increase awareness as well. So it's a, as always with social media, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we address it in the paper. We talk about cyberbullying, and, you know, I reflect back, uh, I don't remember how long ago, but uh, there was a Penn athlete who commit suicide. And, you know, it was one of the things that was really troubling for me when I sort of was looking at all of this was, you know, she had a, her social media and her parents were great and, very supportive of, of her trying to get help, but they were like, you look so happy. And she's like, oh, mom, it's just pictures, you know? And there, it is amazing to me, uh, not growing up with social media, how, how Im- 
important that is and you know people are posting and people are you know looking for likes etc and i i just think that's a really an issue that definitely was has changed the landscape and then on the flip side to answer your you know the first part of your question was you know i really do think that our athletes now are in a much better place to to talk openly about some struggles that they're experiencing and i think that's that's fortunate and they're much more willing to, to you know talk to people especially if if we on the on the sports medicine side can sort of ask the questions, you know, just have to remember to ask the question, right? You know, and if the, if we do, then I think we'll be able to, you know, probably better support and better help athletes that might be struggling because you don't know if you don't ask, you know. And I use the analogy sometimes with with concussion, you know, sort of never. If you don't ask, are you apprehensive? Are you wor- are you worried about returning to play? If you don't ask that question, you know, you won't know that there are a lot of athletes that are really struggling with that piece of, they don't want to get hurt again. They don't want to, you know, whatever the injury is. Right. And the segue to that, Margo is lots of segues because Margo makes a lot of great points as does Giselle is, you know, one of the other parts is about um, once you end your career as an athlete, once you stop being an athlete at that level, either um, because of an injury or because uh, your body can't perform anymore. Uh, that is a huge transition time for the athletes and being aware of that, you know, just because they're graduating or they're retiring from their sport, they're going to have struggles with their, their ideas of self-worth and, and who are they? How are they going to navigate through this world now if they can't identify as being a, an athlete? And um, when, when I was in the Wubble last year, the um, WNBA's uh, Wubble down in Florida, one of the things that our athletes down there, you know, they they were not only a elite athlete, but now they were, they had the mantle of uh, being the spokespeople for social justice issues. Black Lives Matter, um, they d- devoted their season to uh, Breonna Taylor, who was murdered and that was a lot for for some of them uh, because they received a lot of uh, venomous uh, comments on their social media and a lot of them just quit social media and you'll find that more and more athletes are now you know it can help their brand image etc but can also destroy them because of the comments and so it's really important for us to be able to bring up those issues because they may not feel comfortable talking to others about it, but we are their safe space as their team physicians. There's so many good things that you're both bringing up here and going with that athlete identity. And it's not just an athlete. It is not just a WNBA player. It's also a figure for social justice. It is also a teammate. It is also a friend and social media can both allow you to do all of these things and try to really grow these other pieces of you that are important that help you have multiple identities, but it can also be multiple areas of attack and bullying that people can be trying to bring you down and um, how much that's going to impact you. Margo is talking about with social media, how those pictures, everybody looks fine. And so there's also this, things look normal, things look great. So why did you have to withdraw from the Olympics? Mm -hmm. You look fantastic. And so the mental health injuries are not 
visible the way that a torn ACL is visible or the way that a hamstring strain is clearly visible. I can see you're wrapping. I can see you limping. So obviously you have a problem. I understand that you can't play right now, but a mental health injury often it's there brewing and you are putting on your best face. You are still putting up the best pictures and, you know, it often goes a lot farther where you look fine because you're just putting up that image and struggling to do that. And it can be real ugly when things collapse. And if you, if you keep trying to push through that without taking the break, but that also then, as we talk about the social media bullying, it makes it hard for people to just see the problem. And so they, they then start to say things like, well, you had a bad performance, so you quit. I see what that was instead of acknowledging I ha- I'm not Simone Biles. I have no idea how she feels. She's telling yeah. me this, how she feels. I have to believe her. That's it. You got to believe her. Right. And, and these are, I think it's a tricky thing when dealing with mental health because it's not visible. So it makes it harder to see and harder for maybe layperson right. to understand. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, Simone's getting a great deal of support. Her sponsors aren't, aren't withdrawing from her, et cetera. But the same thing with Naomi Osaka, the, you know, she basically said, I, I don't, and the, again, this is public, right? I don't, I'm not personally involved with her care or anything like that. But it, it comes down to then what is an athlete's responsibility towards the French Open? What you know? What was the contractual response? Contractual responsibilities? What about your responsibilities towards your teammates and your team? And there's so many of these external pressures. Um, and and what an athlete and what all of us, honestly, what all of us as team physicians and what athletes and have to remember is the first and foremost person they have to take care of is themselves first and then think about everything else. And so she was in a position where she could pay the fine for not holding that press conference. So there must've been some type of contractual obligation, but at the end, she was like, I'm, I'm done. I, you know, I can't do this anymore. This is not going to be good for my well being. And if you have listened to any of her interviews, she's a soft-spoken young lady who doesn't like the limelight she's uncomfortable in it she feels like this is crazy how much I'm agile you know the adulation that I receive for 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 being a tennis player is crazy um and so she she doesn't thrive in that environment uh a little aside when I started as a head team position at Cal and this was back in 1995 um there was no social media but there was a chat group or some type of email group and it was for the fans of uc berkeley you know football my husband was part of it because he's a fan of uc berkeley football and there was a particular injury and the attacks on the sports medicine staff specifically me for allowing this athlete to participate even though it was shared decision making we have reviewed the harms and benefits and my, my husband said to me, don't read any of this. <laughs> and in fact, because he knew how it would impact me. And in fact, he stopped being a part of it because it impacted him. And, and even back then, that was in 1997 when these attacks happened or 98 was, it's there and it can impact. That's what I mean. It can impact all of us. So as team physicians, for those of you who are listening on this podcast, don't wrap up your worth as well in terms of yeah. being a team physician for us whatever team or your your high school team etc 
because you're much more than that. So, so just be aware that this position statement, you know, can be applied sometimes to you as well and to our us as colleagues. And so we need to depend upon with ourselves, not only with how we're going to work with our athletes, but also amongst ourselves for our mental health. I think it's really important that we're aware about this position statement, but as well be aware about the support that we can find uh, among our community. Yeah, that's a really good point, Cindy. Absolutely. It is. I mean, I think there are a lot of pressures and I think, you know, it's uh, always a a thrill to be a a team position at that, at that elite level, no matter what, what it is, but it, it also, you know, you don't want to lose to, you want, you know, still be true to yourself and, and your role as a physician, which is, you know, should be the first thing that is the priority is the, is your patient. Absolutely. I think, you know, when I brought up the point of how have, has the perception of mental health and the care of mental health changed over time. One of the things that I saw when Nomi Osaka said, no, I I don't want to do the press statement. I'm not interested in that was I did see this little backlash from older tennis players saying, well, back in my day, I did this and that's how we grew the sport. So you have to do it too. And I think that can also be a pressure of keeping up traditions, but also you know, we see this in medicine of back in my day, we worked 120 hour a week. What is this 80 hour a week nonsense? And you have to do it too, because I had a hard time. You should struggle too. And instead of taking the sort of approach of we're going to keep evolving and we're going to keep growing. And if we're doing a good job, we're just making it better for each new generation, for each new set of athletes to make their own way. And, you know, as we talk too about social media, Naomi Osaka, she probably has more followers on her own if she wants to do her own news. She does not need NBC and CBS and ABC to to be her news. And so it's it's a whole different ballgame with the social media altogether of how athletes can promote themselves and be their own brand and put their own, this is who I am, out into the universe. But it's I think it's really interesting to see that kind of pressure from the folks who have gone before who sometimes are miffed that the new kids don't have it as tough yeah have a and, whole different set of issues by the, the way and the, and the biggest I think for those of us who are listening and those of us who are our team positions at the high school and college level if you're gonna the, the new name image and likeness legislation is only going to make things worse and I, I I will I would just say that you know now you're going to, you are going to make money based on how many likes you have. And if you're going to sponsor a a product on your, on your page, and if you have a lot of money, if you're a professional athlete, you can have people that, that run those social media pages for you and you don't have to read any of it. Right. So you can insulate yourself, but for college students and high school students, they are the ones running their social media pages and they will be reading the replies and they can be toxic. And that again is going to be an issue for all of us to be aware of in terms of working with our athletes. And and the appointments that are now made for our athletes who are having mental health concerns and challenges are so much more of a greater percentage that we're seeing than when, you know, I was early in my sports medicine career. So we, we just have to be like, like Margot said, we, we need to be prepared and we need to uh, be educated about how to talk to our, our athletes about this. It is. It opens up a host of opportunities, but it also opens up to 
you know, making that social media so much more important when we already have good studies that the longer you spend on social media, the less happy you are. So, and then if it is opening up to bullying, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see where it all shakes out, but position statements like this that help team physicians, athletic trainers, you know, anyone working with the athletes, see what some of these issues are and just open your eyes to it and go, how is this impacting my athlete where it, it may or may not be impacting them to the point of a physical potential injury, right? Like Simone Biles and the twisties that could physically harm her, but it, it also can just the, the mental debilitation can be so strong with these things. So it's important to be aware of these issues, to see these issues. If you were to take another look at this position statement and say, Hey, we're about 18 months into COVID. How would you update this position statement to take into kind of account? We talked about this very beginning of the impact of COVID on our athletes and the identity and the ability to play sport, not be sport, be in person, not be in person, work with your team, not work with your team. How do you think that would, you know, how would you address that in your new position statement 2.0? Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know, I'll uh, take the first stab at this because, you know, the psychological response to injury and illness is one of our sections. And I think you can apply, I think you can apply it to COVID. Um, Obviously, COVID's been something that has shook the world and made all of sports stop. And I think, you know, at least in the United States and, and elsewhere, you know, we sort of everyone has taken this very resilient approach to getting back to sport. And for certainly for athletes, it's been um, without a doubt a challenge. I mean, the NCAA had a, a survey related to mental health and COVID in the spring, and the numbers were astronomical. Um, and there have been publications, you know, uh, in terms of COVID-19 and mental health that uh, Claudia Reardon, who was one of our authors, um, is the lead author on. But I, I do think that it, it, can, it can apply as it relates to, uh, you know, the response to injury and sort of athletes focusing on who they are. I mean, what I experienced uh, in the the beginning part of the pandemic um, and then the subsequent fall at Princeton where our athletes didn't come back to the university, um, our undergraduates didn't. And for a lot of them, they actually figured out and sorted out who they were outside of being an athlete. And for for many of them, it was actually to some extent a welcome timeout or whatever you want to call it, where they rechanneled themselves and and sort of figured out who they were outside of being the athlete and and then also for for many of them sort of like up the ante in terms of their focus and and their you know their desire to get back into training and they realize how much they missed it they realize how much they loved it you know so i think there's been all, all different kinds of responses to this in the next version of this position statement of which Giselle, you will be anointed the, uh, the lead author. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, goody. I, I think that uh, a couple, couple issues. One is uh, maybe expanding the um, self-identity personality issues a little bit more and only in the fact that we, um, the cultural identity, uh, you know, I think it's come more and more. I mean, Anthony Irvin was a, an example and I, you know, he was like one of, early on and the pressures faced on athletes if they're you know a woman you know in a sport or a person of color an athlete of color or an athlete of a certain religion um, or the first Jewish you know heritage right athlete the you get identified as that type of athlete not not the elite athlete that you are in that sport and and I think that's 
that adds a little, an extra layer of pressure. The other thing I think we could expand upon would be the, um, the self-medication aspect of it. And it brings up when, when Shakari Richardson was um, suspended because of, of a positive uh, marijuana test after the uh, US Olympic trials. And, and she said, I was dealing with the, the death of my uh, mother and, um, and uh, I use it as a way to cope you know, and, and I apologize and et cetera. But I, I think that we can really expound upon the fact that it, it's not, a, we talked more about self-medicating after an injury and using opioids, et cetera, but it's really self-medicating for mental health reasons too, right? Mm-hmm. We yes. don't, we didn't really talk about that one as much. So if you're having a sleep disorder, which we talk about sleep disorders in our paper as well, but if you're having sleeping issues, you may turn to medications to help you sleep. We, we do discuss that. But also if you're anxious, if you're depressed, if you're dealing with uh, a mental health challenge, turning to medications to help with that, I think we could probably expound upon that issue as well. And again, Shakari Richardson is a huge, unfortunate example of, of that. You know, we, we could talk about policy and whether or not marijuana should be a banned drug, but the issue is that why was she using and that was one of the reasons she was using. Absolutely. I think the other thing too, we could, you know, I mean, again, we, we tried to focus this paper for sports medicine physicians and the, the rest of the athletic care network, you know, but and we did try to sort of make it, you know, what's the, what's the prevalence in athletes? Uh, what's the effect on, how do you manage this in athletes? Uh, what's the effect on performance and then prevention. And I think there's been, you know, there's been a little bit of work since our statement came out um, at the, you know, at the IOC level and in terms of detection. And so I think that would be an area too, where we would, you know, there's a, there's a sports mental health assessment tool and a sports mental health recognition tool that, you know, incorporate some of the, some of the early detection pieces that we could probably, you know, and that would be some of like take home messages for sports docs out there, would be to sort of, you know, improve what we do from a recognition standpoint. Ask the question when you're when you have an athlete that's injured. Uh, remember to ask the questions about, you know, how is this affecting you? How are you doing? You know, and how are you coping with this? On just from a psychological standpoint. So the more that we can, you know, embed some of these um, early detection tools into our practices, I think would be an area to expound on. Yeah, the, more of a practical toolbox type of a uh, section. Mm-hmm. Uh, believe me, I mean, Jill, you, you mentioned how many pages was this? Uh, 87? Yeah. 87. I mean, <laughs> this is a huge yeah. topic. It's so it's important. A huge topic. And we, you know, in multiple drafts and drafts, you know, rewrites, et cetera, there are a lot of topics we could have included and we, we wanted to keep it short. And, and in fact, for those of you listening, you don't have to read all 89 pages. Uh, we do have a, a executive summary I believe that's what it's called, but uh, the everything is free online um, so that you could go to different sections of the paper. And certainly there, there have been great papers, as Margaret's mentioned, published since ours, but we, we will definitely keep updating our position statements as we do for AMSSM um, to keep up with the current literature. And I will be actually leading a um, editorial commentary uh, in BJSM uh, to be published later this fall with some other of our AMSSM members to discuss this issue that we're talking about now, which is about the mental health of the athlete. 
I think this topic is going to keep coming up over and over again. And the more information we have about it, the better for all of us. Any final words on mental health and the athlete? It could yeah, be an 87 hour podcast. Yeah, exactly. We covered a um, lot. We covered a lot of really important topics here today. Yeah, so. I know. I mean, I, I think to, to some extent, I, I, I'm just glad that we're, you know, AMSSM has continued to lead in, in many initiatives. And I, I do think that uh, this is an important, certainly a really important topic for sports medicine physicians. So I'm, I'm glad that we've, we've addressed it. Um, no, no shame in an 87 page document because it's, it's really all the, all the important stuff is, you know, is, is covered to some extent, I think as, as well as it could be, but I'm glad that this is on everyone's radar and, and, you know, it's getting the attention that it deserves. Right. And uh, Giselle, thank you so much for leading this as well. And uh, for your preparation and, and professionalism. Thank um, you. It's this topic. Well, thank you, Dr. Chang and Dr. Patukian. And I'd also like to thank you, the listener, and I hope you join us for the next episode of the AMSSM Sports Medcast.